Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The following episode contains disturbing scenes of war. Parental discretion is advised. It is late, one January night in 1978, on the outskirts of the village of Mitchett in the south of England. Two 15-year-old boys, Ron Hills and Ian Houle, are running home through the cold, windy darkness, when Ron senses something moving through the clouds above them. Turning a corner, at the sound of a low hum, he stops and looks up, to see a large oblong shape cruising through the sky, lighting up the clouds as it goes, with two white beams of light at the front, and two red lights that pulsed on and off underneath. Ian, catching up to Ron moments later, stops suddenly by his side, and looks up in awe as the shape continues on overhead toward a small farm holding to their left, illuminating the top of a nearby forest as it passed. Then a strange feeling came over Ian, as if he might burst into tears at any moment. Ron felt it too. The boys looked to each other, and without saying a word, shot off again towards home, keeping one eye on the strange object as they went. It's gone, said Ron, stopping for a moment to catch his breath. No, it hasn't. Look, said Ian, pointing to a light in the distance, just visible between two houses. Then they heard that ominous hum again, getting louder and louder. The thing was coming back toward them. Hurry, shouted Ian, as they shot off once more toward Ian's home on the Linwood Drive estate. Turning into the road, they realised with horror that the thing was now right above them, glowing with a misty orange light, as if it were beginning to heat up. Ian screamed for his mother as the boys sprinted toward the front door. When she opened it moments later, she found them shaking and white and looking fearfully to the sky. It was chasing us, said Ian, close to tears. What was? she asked with some alarm. 
but when they turned to find it, the thing had gone. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. It was a year later when the Fisher family were driving home to the village of Blackwood in the south of Scotland. A light drizzle had begun to fall, pattering against the windscreen like gentle static, as John kept the wheel steady. In the back, kids Roger and Audrey valiantly fought off sleep, while John's wife dozed in the passenger seat. John looked up for a moment at the few stars he could see, blinking through the gaps in the cloud, then turned his attention back to the road as they continued on toward Livingston, a town eight miles west of Edinburgh. It had just gone 11pm when Roger pointed out something peculiar in the distance, moving through the sky. Roger's mother roused from sleep. Yes, what is that? she said. John looked about, trying to see it too, but it was just out of his view. What is it? he said. It was hard to make out what it was exactly, only that it appeared to be hovering about 120 feet off the ground with an intense white beam of light shooting out the front of it and four red lights surrounding it. John looked about again, then finally caught the faint sight of something far off to the left. It's just the light from a crane, he said. But it's moving, said Audrey. The fishers continued to watch it as it appeared to hover for a moment in the sky before disappearing completely from view. Ten months later, on November 9th, 1979, 61-year-old Robert Taylor woke early in the morning and slipped quietly out of bed, being careful not to wake his wife, Mary. The couple lived on Brumino Drive in Deans, on the northern outskirts of Livingston, barely a kilometre from where the fishers had been passing when they saw that peculiar object in the sky back in January. Wiping the sleep from his eyes, Bob slipped on his overalls and headed out into the crisp dawn air, then hopped into his pickup truck and drove off to work. Robert, or Bob Taylor, was born in 1918 close to Pitt Lockery in the Highlands of Scotland, the third youngest of 14 children. Having been infused with the love of the great outdoors from an early age, he would often neglect to complete the four-mile walk to school, preferring instead to spend the day ambling through local woods along the sparkling River Tummel. At the outbreak of the Second World War, at the age of 21, he joined the armoured Fife and Forfer Yeomanry Division as a tank driver. It was a job he described as being little different to driving a big lorry, as long as you remembered to keep your head. Five years later, on June 11th, at the age of 26, Bob and his tank crew arrived in Normandy as part of the 11th Armoured Division. Over the next 10 months, the division pushed further into France and then up through Belgium and the Netherlands as they fought back the German armed forces eventually making it as far as Lerbeck in the north of Germany in March 1945. A few months previously, 
as the German army continued to be driven back from every direction. Heinrich Himmler, who was in charge of running the German government's programme of extermination and concentration camps, made a characteristically brutal decision. In part due to his fear that his prisoners would fall into the hands of the opposing forces, but also in an attempt to hide what had been happening in his camps, he ordered many of the outlying camps to be evacuated. As a result, tens of thousands of prisoners were led out on forced marches to internal camps, often walking for miles in harsh, freezing conditions, with many dying en route. Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in the north of Germany had been built to house a few thousand inmates at most. By the end of March 1945, this number had swelled to 60,000 as more and more prisoners coming from as far away as Auschwitz, Neuengamme and Dora Mittelbau were forced inside it. With the Third Reich on the brink of collapse, an agreement was made between Heinrich Himmler and the advancing British and Canadian forces that the German army would vacate Bergen-Belsen. On April 15th, Robert Taylor and what remained of the 11th Armoured Division arrived at the camp to liberate it. What they found there was as close to a vision of hell as you were ever likely to find on Earth. Emaciated figures stared out of vacant eyes from behind the barbed wire fencing as the soldiers approached. Some in striped pyjama-like clothing, others in nothing but rags and bare feet. The stench of excrement was heavy in the air. Inside, thousands of corpses, little more than skin stretched across bone in various states of decay, littered the ground. Many had been stripped of their clothes and thrown on top of each other in piles as much as five or six high. Some had turned green. As described at the time by the BBC's Richard Dimbleby, who accompanied the soldiers into the camp, among the living and the dead, you could not see which was which. The living lay with their heads against the corpses, and around them moved the awful, ghostly procession of emaciated, aimless people, with nothing to do and with no hope of life, unable to move out of your way, unable to look at the terrible sights around them. Inside the various huts that lined the camp were the tangled remains of numerous others who died from starvation, lying in puddles of urine and feces. Some of the bodies had been cannibalised, their flesh removed and internal organs knived out. Many women had given birth in the camp too, with sometimes as many as seven babies being born a day. A woman screamed out to a passing soldier to find milk for her newborn. As he drew near, she handed him something, bundled up in a filthy blanket, then ran away in a flood of tears. The soldier opened the blanket to find the baby, long since dead, inside it. It was estimated that there were as many as 13,000 dead among the 60,000 living prisoners. Many more thousands would die in the following weeks from typhus, dysentery and tuberculosis that was rife throughout the camp. 
It was an experience, like most people who were really there, that Robert Taylor seldom talked about, but one that had acquainted him all too closely with some of the coldest realities of the material world. After the war, Taylor found a job working the roads for Perth City Council before eventually relocating to Livingston, where in 1979 he was working as a foreman forester for the Livingston Development Corporation. By all accounts, he wasn't a man prone to exaggeration and he cared little for much beyond his family and his work, save for the odd pint of beer and a cigarette. Certainly, encounters of the strange were the furthest thing from his mind when he set off for work that chilly November day. But soon, it would be all people would want to talk about. That morning, Taylor headed first to the Forestry Commission's depot at Rosebank Nursery to pick up a crew to complete a quick job in nearby Bell's Quarry. At about the same time, local resident Graham Kennedy was heading to work along the A89, just past the village of Deckmont, about a mile north of Bob Taylor's home in Deans, when he saw a bright orange-coloured object moving quickly toward him in the sky. Kennedy swerved the car to get out the way, nearly colliding with another vehicle in the process. Moments later, only a few hundred metres away, Nurse Anne McGregor, who worked at the nearby Bangower Hospital, was just stepping off the bus when she heard a hissing sound coming from somewhere to the south. Looking up, she saw a bright yellow light that appeared to be descending into the Deckment Woods, a small area of woodland covering Deckment Law, a low-lying hill that rose up between Deckment Village and Deans. About two hours later, Bob returned home for breakfast, After a quick stop-off, he said bye to Mary once more, then whistled for their red Irish setter, Lara, to accompany him out to the truck. The pair of them jumped in and drove back out to work, heading for the Deckment Woods. Most nights I share a bed with a Pro Bowl quarterback, an Olympic swimmer and a national soccer star. I should explain. When I heard how many elite athletes sleep on a molecule mattress and call it their best sleep ever, I ordered one for myself and soon found they were spot on. Molecule sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It's unlike any other mattress in a box. It's cool to the touch, unlike other foam mattresses. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions, so I never awaken with a stiff neck or sore back, and it's antimicrobial. Molecule Mattress is how elite athletes and I get the best sleep ever. Sleep on your Molecule Mattress risk-free for 100 nights. If you don't have your deepest, most restorative sleep ever, return it. Visit onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. Again, save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED at onmolecule.com. That's onmolecule.com. A few years previously, Bob had been called out to Deckment Law to help search for a young girl who'd gone missing. 
The night had been especially wet and cold, making it all the more vital that they found her as quickly as possible. After hours of searching through the bitter weather, the girl was eventually found under a tree, strangely warm and dry, having claimed to have followed a sheep into the forest before getting lost. As it happened that morning, Taylor, who was responsible for the general management of the forest, was also on the lookout for some sheep that had apparently strayed into the area. Bob parked his truck at the bottom of the hill, then continued on foot, with Lara bouncing happily beside him. Up above, a pale sun shone in the sky as a few broken clouds began to gather. As they headed on up the hill, Bob reveled in the relative silence, with little to be heard save for the gentle crackle of frost breaking underfoot and the rustling of the pines as they neared the edge of the woods. Slipping through the tree line, Lara bounded on ahead as Bob kept an eye out for any sign of the sheep. He'd walked about half a mile when he heard Lara barking frantically. Catching sight of her up ahead, Bob jogged after her down the slope toward a break in the trees. As Lara ran on ahead, he followed her into the clearing. Bob's wife Mary was busy doing the washing up when she looked out of the kitchen window to see a pale and exhausted looking Bob staggering toward the house. His face and clothes were caked with mud and his trousers badly ripped. Mary ran to the door and wrenched it open. What's happened? Did you have an accident? she asked in shock. I've been attacked, replied Bob, stumbling into the kitchen. By who? said Mary, following close behind. Bob staggered to the sink, ran some water into a glass and gulped it down, and took a moment to gather his thoughts. By a spaceship, he said. Unsure what to say, Mary told her husband to sit down, then went upstairs to run him a bath. Having been summoned by Mary, Robert's boss, Malcolm Drummond, arrived at the house a few minutes later to find Bob still sat in the bath in a deeply disorientated state. Concerned by his nonsensical story about a spaceship attacking him in the forest, Drummond suggested they call their doctor immediately, thinking he might be suffering from some kind of head injury. By the time Dr Adams arrived 15 minutes later, Bob was out of the bath and settled on the sofa. After having his blood pressure checked and nothing obvious found to be wrong with him, Bob gave them his version of events. As Taylor went on to explain, after stepping into the clearing, he was startled to find a large dome-shaped object about 30 feet high sitting in the middle of it. Around the object was a ring that he described as being like the flange of a pipe that had small propeller-like things sticking up from it. The object appeared to have no seams or joins on its surface, which was comprised of a rough, grey-coloured material, with several dark spaces above the ring that he took to be windows that were all completely blacked out. As he continued to stare at it in disbelief, it seemed almost to disappear right in front of him, becoming translucent, 
so much so that at one point it was as though he could see right through it to the trees beyond. The next thing he remembered, Lara began barking furiously as two metal spheres with spikes sticking out of them dropped out at the bottom of the object and headed straight toward him. Before he could even move, they'd rolled up his leg and attached themselves to him. All of a sudden, he felt them pulling him down to the ground, when he was overcome by a hideous, noxious smell that caught at the back of his throat, and then everything went black. He came round twenty minutes later to find the object and Lara had gone. Finding his legs too numb to move and feeling deeply nauseous, he eventually succeeded in crawling back to the truck. He tried to use the radio, but his throat was too dry to speak. In a panic, he threw the car into gear and slammed on the accelerator pedal, only to drive straight into a ditch. With nothing left for it, he got back out and stumbled home. Drummond and Dr. Adams looked to each other in confusion as Bob's story came to an end. Adams gave Bob another look over and found two red marks, like burns on his thighs, where he claimed the strange objects had attached themselves to him. There was also a graze under his chin, which Adams assumed was where he'd fallen onto the ground. Suspecting he may have had a heart attack or an epileptic fit, Adams suggested he go right away to hospital to get a proper examination. A short time later, Drummond and Adams headed out to the woods where they found Bob's truck stuck in a ditch with the engine still running, just like he'd explained. An unharmed Lara was also there, thankfully, waiting by it. The pair then headed out to inspect the clearing where the incident was alleged to have occurred, but found nothing untoward. Down at the hospital, after waiting two hours to be seen, Bob grew bored and headed back home, where Drummond was waiting for him. After telling Bob that he and Dr. Adams had failed to find anything strange, Taylor demanded they head back there immediately, so he could see for himself. With the pair back up at the clearing, Bob called Drummond over to look at something he'd found on the ground. A clear pair of markings like caterpillar tracks, about 10 feet long and 7 feet apart, and dotted all around them were about 40 holes in the ground, exposing fresh earth, almost as though something spiky had been rolling about in the mud. Drummond looked on in complete bewilderment. Though they didn't look too dissimilar to the markings of some kind of heavy forest machinery, they began and ended inside the clearing. With Mary concerned that Bob had been attacked by someone, she suggested he call the police to begin a formal investigation. That afternoon, D.I. MacDonald, along with six colleagues from the local constabulary, visited the scene and took photos of the peculiar markings. As they inspected the long grass, they also found two lines of impressions in the space where Bob claimed to have been dragged across the ground. The following Thursday... Bob's clothes were given to forensic experts in Edinburgh for further examination. Both Bob's work trousers and the long johns he wore underneath them 
had been ripped on both sides, exactly mirroring the marks on Bob's legs. The forensic scientists concluded that the rips had been caused by something pulling upwards with considerable force. The next day, as word of the strange encounter began to spread, two UFO enthusiasts from the British UFO Research Association came up to visit the site. After running a Geiger counter across the clearing, however, they found no evidence of radiation or any other anomalous readings. Over time, Bob's story would get picked up by numerous papers, and though he was happy to pose for a few photographs, he was not the type to revel in his sudden moment of fame. The event remains the only apparent UFO incident in Britain to be officially investigated by the police. Though Robert Taylor was called on many times to recount his peculiar tale, he never once deviated from the original narrative and remained convinced by it right up until his death in 2007. In the months following his account, more apparent UFO sightings were unearthed that were also said to have occurred in the same area around the same time as the Taylor incident. One event from the night before involving the sighting by schoolchildren of a strange object descending into the forest at Deer Hill, just across the main road from where Taylor claimed he was attacked, was also reported to the police. And there was one final coda, unearthed a few years later, according to Malcolm Robinson, who wrote about it in his book, The Deckment Woods UFO Incident. A week or so after the incident, A ufologist named Alan Price was at a social event when a man approached him having heard about his interest in UFOs. The man was said to have been a former police officer who'd also heard about Robert Taylor's strange encounter. It was all the more peculiar, he said, since only a few days before it, a former colleague had told him about another strange encounter that also apparently occurred near the Deckman Woods. Just like Bob's story, this too had begun with a dog being walked by a young boy, shooting off after an object was seen descending into the nearby countryside. The boy had then seen the object shoot off into the air, leaving no sign of the dog behind. The following morning, after the incident was reported to the police, an officer conducting a search of the area in question stumbled upon something buried in the long grass. It was the ripped-off hind leg of a dog. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. 
Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.